from Washington, D.C., this is Trade Geek Podcast with your host, Pete Mento. Aloha, nerds, and welcome to Trade Geek Podcast. I am Pete Mento, and I am so delighted. I am so incredibly delighted that you have decided to spend, uh, I guess, more than an hour hanging out with me and uh, geeking out about trade. I am I'm so excited that um, so many of you pushed me to go ahead and do this. Over the course of the past year, we've been spending a lot of time with trade school. You know, trade school is an hour or so every couple of weeks where I'm in kind of a quasi electronic classroom environment looking at themes about trade, whether it's import compliance, export compliance, duty minimization. And trying to teach people sort of in a one directional environment where I'm lecturing and droning on and on about things. And we went from maybe 150 people joining us to having thousands of people listen to recordings and joining us live. And, and it was it was incredible. It was actually humbling. And for those of you who know my ego, the fact that anything is humbling, that's pretty impressive. But all kidding aside, it, it was incredible that so many people were thirsty for this information. So I was sitting down with my friend Mark Saxelby over at Crane and my friend Karen Gerwitz at the World Trade Center. And I said, wouldn't it be cool if I started reaching out to my friends that I have in this industry and we had more of a informal, conversive environment for a podcast? And they thought it was a great idea and I thought it was a great idea. Mostly because uh, I know I'm sick and tired of hearing my own voice, and I'm sure you are too. And they both agree with me that they, they were sick and tired of hearing my own voice. So I started reaching out to friends of mine in the industry, and they all agreed uh, that it would be cool to hear from people, to hear from folks that had been in this industry for 10, 15, 20, 30 years, and to hear from people that were in regulatory uh, positions, to hear from folks that were lawmakers different people in banking, cybersecurity, military logistics, folks that were in the training side of things, and to have fun, spirited conversations about global trade. I, I don't know why no one's doing this. And when I looked at the podcast environment, it's like they were shunning trade nerds, you know? And it's not like there's not that many of us. I mean, you go to ICPA, shout out to, to Ann Lister, <laughs> shout out to Carrie Lippy. <laughs> you know, and you, you go out there, you, uh, you, you see there's thousands and thousands of us. And now what we do for a living is actually in the news. I normally would, would go to, to parties and I would tell people what I did for a living and they would quietly excuse themselves to get another cocktail and then treat me like a leper. But now I say I work in global trade and everybody wants to hear my opinion on what's going on with these duties. And I'm sure it's the same way for all of you, right? And we've all got our opinions. So enough about my opinions. Let's get other people's opinions. Let's ask other economists. Let's, let's, how about a conversation with me and two or three other economists that don't agree with me? And let's have a respectful, honest conversation with some other reasonable people about where we think the trade war is going to go. How about that, right? I think that's a great idea. And I work with some brilliant people. So, and they don't all agree with me. So let's have a conversation about where we think the US-China thing's gonna go, where we think US-Europe's gonna go, where we think NAFTA's gonna go. I think that's a pretty cool conversation. Let's bring some people in from Mexico and Canada and talk about if USMCA is a big deal or not. You know, I would love to have a conversation about classification because I honestly stink at it. So let's bring somebody in who's great at it and I'll try to make that fun if that's possible. <laughs> so let's see what that's like. I, I think there's a space for these kind of conversations because honestly, as trade professionals, people don't take us seriously until something goes wrong. And our world is nothing but putting out fires. And wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be just wonderful for once to feel like we're proactively dealing with stuff, to hear about what other people did to manage a situation and then maybe glean something from that and apply it to what we do so that we're not managing problems, but rather trying to deal with something before it happens. I think that would be awesome. You know, part of this also is that there are so many wonderful people in this industry and they're never given an opportunity 
to talk about themselves and the things that they've faced and done. And I think we should put them on record and give them a chance to talk about that. And I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it because I'm sick and tired of hearing these stories and, 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 and saying to them, does everyone else know what you've done? Or does everyone else heard about these things? We're going to give them an opportunity, right? So if you know somebody that you think should be on this podcast, if, if you think you should be on this podcast, hit me up, pete.mento at crow.com. That's C-R-O-W-E, pete.mento at crow.com, C-R-O-W-E. So here's the ground rules for this here podcast. Ground rule number one, we're not going to sell anything. This is not going to be some forum where when I invite people from freight forwarders or consultancies or law firms, they're not going to, they're not going to plug their services. I mean, if you're good at what you do, that should be enough to get people to want to come and, and, and buy your stuff. Number two, there is enough divisiveness and nastiness and hate in the world. We're not going to talk politics. I mean, realistically, politics is a part of what we do every day, right? And we'll talk about them from a factual sense, but this isn't going to be a place where we're nasty and awful to each other regarding politics. I'm just not going to let that happen. Number three, and this is kind of an important one to me, we're going to do our best to be balanced. So if I have an opinion about how maybe we should solve a problem, I'm going to do my best to bring someone else who has another opinion. There's no one right way to manage a problem whether it's valuation, classification, record keeping, uh, export compliance, import compliance, duty minimization, CTPAT. I want to have uh, as, as much of a good universe of ideas as I possibly can. And then lastly, um, I would very much like for this to be a diverse community, a, a diverse place where we're not just talking about logistics and trade, but banking, security, training, anything I can get on here, even if it might seem tangential to what's going on. I want it to be funny. I want to have fun. And maybe that's going to get me in trouble with legal and marketing at work. I don't care because these are not the opinions of the partners and the directors and the people I work with. They're mine and they're my guests. So I'm going to have a good time with this. We'll keep it clean, but we'll keep it funky too. So I hope you have fun listening. I'm going to do my best to make it fun to listen, but it's only going to be a good time if you help me with content. So if you have questions, please send them in. If we use your question on the air, I will send you an autographed Trade Geek poster. Um, if you think you want to be on the podcast, let me know. If you think you know somebody who ought to be on the podcast, let me know. And if you can think of a topic you'd like to see on the podcast, let me know. Yes, we are still doing trade school. It will still be every two weeks, but we're going to keep that format the way it is. We're going to be doing it as a teaching environment. This is going to be a place where we have kind of more in-depth conversations about the world that we live in. And without further ado, why don't we get to that interview? But thank you all so much for your continued support of me and of the work that I'm doing here to try to educate the world that we're in. It means a lot to me that you guys believe in me enough to keep coming back for more. I can't thank you enough. Hopefully I can give you the kind of content that keeps you coming back. If there's ever a time that I don't, you let me know about it. I'll step up my game. All right, let's do this. An open letter to Donald Trump. Mr. President, I'm sure you have no idea who I am. I mean, let's face it. I'm just some failed stand-up comedian with access to the internet and a customs house broker's license. I'm not even sure I know who I am sometimes. But, strangely enough, people seem to listen to me when I talk about trade. So I thought I'd give you a quick heads up. A lot of us are a bit worried about what you might consider to be a victory in the trade war. I'm sure you realize that this has been a painful year for us. The 301 tariffs and the steel and aluminum tariffs have not been an easy thing for us to work with and work around. As a matter of fact, they've been downright awful. Now, as American companies, we understand that the protection of our intellectual property was the main reason and the main focus for this trade war. And we also understand that that's a focus worth fighting for. There have been rumblings coming out of D.C. that there may be some compromises in order to bring an end to this conflict. China has apparently said that they're talking about ending currency manipulation, purchasing tremendous amounts of American agriculture and energy, starting to build ports 
for the purchase of American natural gas, allowing American financial instruments like credit cards to be used in more transactions, and agreeing to open up channels for more American goods. That's all well and good. But remember, the reason this started was to protect American innovation. And if you decide to take that off the table, and if you decide to allow certain companies access to American technology that could be detrimental to our future as the most innovative economy on the planet, that victory would be hollow. Please, sir, don't let our suffering that we've gone through be for nothing. Sincerely, Pete Mento, Trade Geek. We are thrilled and excited to promote uh, the first taping, the first episode of the Trade Geek podcast. Maybe I'll bring up our two speakers to take a seat while I introduce them. Um, first off, Pete Mento. Many of you know Pete Mento. How many of you know Pete Mento? Have seen Pete Mento before? Yes. Um, it's amazing. Nice. So Pete Mento is the managing director, global tax services of Crow now, recently uh, moved to Crow. And because of his passion for the topic and skill at illuminating complex and often dry topics in international trade and economics, Pete is highly sought after a speaker all over the world. He's a formal professional stand-up comedian uh, and has conducted sold-out lectures to tens of thousands of people in every imaginable venue from university lecture halls to nightclubs. His style of mixing economics, history, humor is always welcome change for his clients and students. He is the most unlikely trade geek you will ever meet. The World Trade Center Denver is proud to be sponsoring the Trade Geek Podcast, which will be launched um, very soon and will be happening weekly and we'll be promoting that Trade Geek Podcast weekly for you to tune into. And um, we're just delighted to, to be part of this. Pete was going to, he's going to focus on current events and trade topics. He's going to break it down so that all of us can get a grasp on it because they're changing regularly. So this type of content, I think, is really welcomed. Um, next, let me introduce Kyle Patin. Kyle is the COO of Otter, Otter Products, a valued World Trade Center member and also client of Manufacturer's Edge uh, and the World Trade Center, located in Fort Collins. Kyle Patin is responsible for product, product development, engineering, supply chain, and customer fulfillment functions at Otter Products. No small job. Before joining the organization, Kyle served in a variety of leadership roles at Forney Industries, Advanced Energy, Honeywell, and Motorola. He has studied and implemented lean operations for more than 20 years. I'm sure he's a lot to share about this year's challenges in trade. Ladies and gentlemen, I am pleased to present your Trade Geek podcast live. Pete, take it away. Yeah, yeah that, that live part? That live part's a little terrifying. Uh, generally, when I do trade school, for those of you who don't attend trade school, it's every other week we give a, a topic on, on trade issues. I've generally got on my Red Sox hat on backwards and a Grateful Dead t-shirt. And I'm sitting behind a microphone. I haven't shaved in a day or two. Might be a little hungover. Who knows? So having to be in front of all of you today meant that I had to put on trousers, which was in and of itself a bit depressing. But I didn't wear socks. So um, I'm keeping it as real as I can. Uh, thank you all for coming today. And for those of you listening, thank you as well for, for tuning in. The whole point of this podcast is to do three things. First of all, share knowledge with each other. The best consulting anybody could ever get about international trade launching a new business internationally, managing trade compliance and logistics is probably sitting around you. It's not a question of calling me and paying my outrageous fees. It's more about passing business cards amongst one another, which led me to the second reason. Uh, it's gotten very divisive to talk about what we do because so much of our life these days is unfortunately affected by politics. So can we have conversations about what we do by remaining reasonable and not bringing in the P word? I think we can. And then lastly, I have met so many people that are fascinating. Uh, Karen certainly is. You're getting on the podcast whether you like it or not, lady. Uh, and, and people that have had fascinating jobs in this world. And I think it's really important to us to give them an opportunity to talk about what made them successful, how they remain successful, and to share that with you. So without an agenda, we're really hoping to create some sort of a collaborative environment for all of us to talk about trade. I am looking for other people to interview. So hit me up on LinkedIn. 
and if you pass the test and are even remotely interesting, we'll probably have a chance to get you on. I'm glad the bar was low. Yeah. <laughs> so, wow, you should come on the road with me all the time, Kyle. Uh, with that, I'm, I'm so excited to have you with us today, Kyle. Just a couple of sailors sitting around talking about trade. Yep. Yeah. Uh, we found out that we were both uh, seagoing men here a few minutes ago, so we'll have to control our language, right, Karen? Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Uh, just so that everyone's clear, it, uh, this poor man was foisted on me. He don't, I don't think he wanted to do it. I'm pretty sure that Karen smacked him over the head with a nine iron last night, and he woke up in a suit here in an auditorium. So I cannot thank you enough for, for coming on board. Happy to be here. Yeah. So just very quickly so that everybody has an idea of precisely what your responsibilities are now, why don't you talk about exactly what, you, what it is you do for Otter, and then we'll get to the more... I guess benign questions after that. So the reality is, as a chief operating officer, my job is to implement the will of the board and the CEO, right? And, and whatever organizations I'm responsible for, the truth is the COO runs internal ops and we're responsible for how the company operates. In our case, we do engineering, we develop all our products in-house. We have a pretty extensive worldwide engineering team located in five different countries, so I manage that group. Um, certainly our supply chain and logistics teams, um, we've got members here tonight to, to, I think, cheer me on or maybe embarrass me further. Um, but the fact is our whole worldwide supply chain team, and, and then I also have the product development teams, and, and sometimes that resides in marketing, but ours is so cl closely tied to both our supply chain and our design efforts, it resides in, in my house. and, and um, the great part is I'm not a particularly creative person. I'm an implementer, but I have these extraordinary creative people on my team to make this work. And, and so at Otter in particular, because we're in an industry that's so dynamic and moves so quickly, we really have to have people that are cutting edge, thinking edge. Um, and we're really not only a protective product, but a fashion product. And when you think about fashion and how quickly that industry moves, um, it's all about speed. Yeah, and we were talking about that briefly beforehand, and I don't think that people fully appreciate the type of hard work that has to go into a new product launch. If you could just talk a little bit about that, I think they'd think it was interesting. So, so when we think about all the devices worldwide and how we protect them and all the OEMs, um, and the change of OEMs, I was at Motorola when the, the term in China for a cell phone was Motorola. And, and they're still a player there, but they're certainly not the dominant player they were. So that's an industry that, that went from Motorola to Nokia and on to Apple and, and who's next, right? Samsung's certainly a major player there. And, and the rise of the Chinese device makers in the most recent years, four or five years, the number two device maker in the world now is Huawei behind Samsung. And so the fact is, is that if you're gonna work in that industry, you have to work internationally. And the other thing about it is absolutely unforgiving. When the device is sold, if somebody's going to buy a case, you have to be on peg on day. So, so when those new devices launch, yesterday Apple made a, an announcement about the iPhone 11. The fact is, when those go on sale, our best chance to sell an OtterBox case or a LifeProof case is to be on peg on time. And if we're even a day late, our customers assort somebody else. And we are a major source of profit um, for our customers, so it's important to them that we're there. Um, and, and so when we look at that market and how quickly it moves, when does, when does design certainty happen? And how quickly after design certainty happens or confidence happens can we launch? We cut steel and bring tools online and mount to volume production in 21 days. So, so if you think about that speed, 10 days after that, we're on peg or in channel. And, and so how do you do that rationally when you have a global footprint both in how you sell and in how you source? Um, and so the challenges that we face are profound, which is one of the reasons I'm there. I just dig it. <laughs> I really do. I just love it. I, I think you've touched on two very important topics. The first off is, I don't think people realize you are a bit of a fashion brand when you get right down to it. We are. And there's a lot of innovation that goes into it as well. I showed you when I, I'm gonna reach into my pocket here for my, my telephone. Uh, I have, a, I have a, a box here that has, I believe, isn't uh, Pop Sockets Denver too? Or Colorado too? Boulder. Yeah. Boulder, well, pardon me, Boulder. <laughs> uh, so, 
if you think about it, that's, that's innovation at work. And at the same time, there's also a tremendous amount of fashion that goes into this. I know people that have multiple cases for depending on what they're wearing, depending on where they're going. I have an entirely different case I bought from you guys for when I'm out in the wild. So that's got to make it even more complicated to try to stay in front of a trend. Well, and, and how, do you, how do you look at your customers in the dif different demographics? I've been accused of being a practical, immature male. And, and what that really means is, frankly, I don't care what color my case is. I really want to protect my phone. Yeah. And I have a bunch of utilitarian uses for my case. I own nine or 10 working for the company. That's mandatory. <laughs> but, but the truth is, is that I use it differently than my kids do. That pop socket case was really in part designed for the people that lay on their couch and consume media over their face. I don't do that a lot, right? But in fact, there's a whole demographic of people that do. And we have to design fashion forward to match that and utility forward to match that new world. And if we think about who's consuming media in the, in the world and how they use their devices, we then have to enable that lifestyle. And, and so we are constantly studying how people do and use their device. And then we have to stay relevant. And, and if you look at 5G and, and the coming of 5G and what that might mean for media content. And by the way, how does that interact technically with our products? Because um, there are gaps there matter. If wireless charging is the thing. If you wirelessly charge your phone, can you do it through your case? The pop socket case you have was actually designed to allow wireless charging with the pop socket on. And, and they're a great partner for us. We sat down together and said, you have something cool. We have something cool. Let's see if we can combine them. And four months later, we had a device in market, and it was named device, or product of the year last year at CES. So, so those kinds of innovations and those kinds of great partners we're always looking for. It's fantastic. All right, well, you ready to geek out? Let's geek. It, it is called the Trade Geek Podcast. It's okay, not here the, we go. the Trade Discussion Podcast. So I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but we're in a bit of a trade war. Were you... Were you keyed in on that? Did you get the memo? Uh, I saw one article three or four months ago. Yeah. So, uh, you know, my, my general attitude has been uh, I really don't care about the, the reasons politically why behind it. What I'm more concerned with is how we're going to cope. So we, for those of you who think this is going to be another 20 to 30 minutes of me arguing about why it is and isn't a good thing to have a trade war, that's a different podcast. Uh, but for today, we're talking about how we collectively are coping with it. I think that's a good way to put it, right? We're all kind of dealing with it. It's like every single day we, we come into work and they've, they've done something else. They've changed the rules on us. They've racked up the duties. We're changing the dates. It's been great for, for job security, but I don't think I've had six hours of sleep straight in probably a year. So for me, chaos is wonderful because I charge by the hour in case you weren't aware of that. But for the rest of you, I have to believe that the environment has been pretty difficult. So if you could just talk about how you've been reacting to the trade war and, and how you've been dealing with it, that'd be great. You know, the reality is, is that as we build global supply chains, we just have to understand what the ground rules are. And as business leaders, then we assess risk and cost and speed and capability and capacity, and we make decisions on that basis. And so with the current situation, the difficulty is not that there's a trade war. The difficulty is we don't understand what the rules are day to day. And so the risk to business is profound. And, and I tend to think of building supply chains a little bit like a divided highway. Until you actually get on the highway, you have a lot of choices. You can go to the gas station, you can go to McDonald's, you can go to Starbucks, you can go north, south, east, or west. But the truth is, once you climb on that divided highway, you can't climb off immediately. And for our suppliers, they are making investments in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And so when we ask them to make that investment in a new country, a new factory, um, more capability, more capacity someplace else, we have an obligation to them that runs as long, I'll say, to the next exit ramp. And the question is, when do we pull the trigger there? China, as a trading partner, they have wonderful logistics. They're really good at international trade. They have great harbors. Their, their capability of got, getting products through customs is good. And as they, I've been doing in China, I've been doing business in China almost 30 years. When I, when I got to the country initially, you couldn't get any sort of phone signal. If you went inland, you were isolated. Now, you can use any of your devices any place and work all the time. It's a very different world there. I'll say, given this circumstance, 
despite all that build out, they're a very low cost solution. For us in particular, because we use so much mold and steel and a lot of machining related to our products and molding later, they invested 25 years ago in infrastructure around steel, around energy, and around machining experts. And they built deep capacity there. They are, in fact, a great partner there. And as their quality has improved over the last 10 or 15 years, they're a rival for anybody in the world. However, if we look at total cost, you have to include tariffs now, right? And when we look at that, you have to make a decision to get on the highway. Can you stay in China? If you do, will the tariffs lift? And if they don't, the implication to your supply chain is profound. And so that decision for a supply chain professional or a COO is a big one. Because if I move that, I lose access potentially for some number of years to that capability. I'll say understanding what the rules are. I was dark haired six months ago. Um, I had hair six months ago. <laughs> so, so, so that combination I'll say is tough in the current environment because we don't know what the rules are. And, and it's not a political statement, but I've negotiated with the Chinese a long time. Seems like it's best done behind closed doors, right? And, and that's not a comment on the administration, but it is a comment on international business. You have to know the culture you're dealing with, and you have to meet them halfway, whatever that means, right? So uh, along those same lines, we've, we've worked with a lot of importers and exporters who have made the conscious decision to give another country a shot. And we talked about this earlier. Um, moving out of China to do production in another country, it has its pitfalls. And you mentioned a couple of them there. Uh, certainly for, for the people I deal with, it's the lack of transportation infrastructure. It's the lack of air, air lift and ocean lift. Um, where you have made decisions, or I don't even know if you have, have you had made decisions to produce someplace else? We have made several shifts in our footprint, and I won't say it's a 100% commitment to leave China, but certainly we're going to reduce our dependence there and increase um, our work in India, Vietnam, Malaysia, Cambodia, Mexico. So, so the truth is, is we have to move some of it. Sure. Because if it's an 18-month or two-year process to shift your supply chain, you have to start to finish. Um, I, that, that's what blows me away. The, these supply chains, I think about yours when you're a fashion, you are fashion, it has a lot to do with innovation and technology to just take a wrench and throw it in the works and say, let's start over someplace else. That's gotta be a significant commitment. We make major commitment to our suppliers. So, so we don't own a manufacturing floor, but we have an entire manufacturing team located in three different countries that in fact work hand in hand in glove with our suppliers to bring our products up and build them the way we want them built. Um, we spent years training our supply base to do it our way. And we do spend a lot of time to make sure that they don't lose the recipe. That investment over the last 10 or 12 years, um, at least a portion of it is at risk. And anytime you're a COO that has commitments to customers, because customers come first, mm -hmm. you don't want to put that at risk. Right? Customers are going to determine your future. We have to deliver. Absolutely. And, and when we bring new suppliers on, creates risk to our business. Um, and that gray hair right there is about that one. Well, it's, it's, it's great that you touched on that because I've had, I'd love to sit up here and say that so many people have decided to take production out of China and, and wow, it worked out just fine. Uh, there have been many people who have moved to other jurisdictions and the quality has been fine, delivery's been fine, they're more comfortable with the IP situation. I've had just as many where it's been a complete failure and they've, they've ended up having to go back to China because of the things that you've talked about. So, I mean, it sounds like you're pretty non-committal about whether or not you're gonna keep that production out of the country. And I think that's probably wise, who knows who's listening, probably nobody, but um, it's probably smart to at least start from there. I, I think when you look at some of the neighboring countries in that theater, with the rise of labor costs in China, there, is, there was going to be movement anyway. To what country and which country is a benefactor of that movement? You know, I'll say I'm old enough to have seen several moves in and out of different countries with different labor costs. Sure. Um, and, and certainly China is the low cost producer in the world. It's, it's very similar to where we were as a country 25 years ago, where our technology was carrying us past our competitors. But for products that require a lot of labor, that flight has already happened. They're living elsewhere now, right? Thailand and Cambodia, et cetera. And, and so when we look at our industry, which is more technical, 
technical capability matters. Uh, universities, ports, bridges, power grids, and, and airlift capacity because we use a lot of airlift. We are a major consumer of airlift. And when we launch, we'll either charter or utilize dozens of planes in moving our product because we have to be there in days. So, so a country has to have that capability available to us or however we manufacture, we can't get it out of country. It's a big deal. <laughs> when you said you're a major consumer of air freight, every freight forwarding sales rep in this place is here just perked up. Air freight? Maybe I, I can't afford to send I my kids to school. I know some of you, probably. Yeah. I'll, I'll keep them away from you. Don't worry. <laughs> They're all very afraid of me. Uh, the, now, keeping on that, that same line, I've been very outspoken that I believe the American economy is moving from one of service to technology. And Denver has been a place that has always been a, a, a bit of a, a step ahead. I mean, you guys are getting a spaceport, right? Are you kidding me? Yeah. A spaceport. Yeah. It's so cool. Pretty rad. Yeah, imagine that. Um, it, it is unbelievably cool, but you know, the protection of intellectual property is a big deal. And I would imagine that that's got to be something you have to keep in mind as you consider your products and where they're going. We spend a lot of time on it. And in fact, we have a team dedicated to it. And there are a lot of methodologies we use to protect our IP. Um, when we look at that, we control our tools specifically. We retire them. We do product count off our tools. I won't tell you what kind of, I'll say, intelligence we have in our packaging. Um, but we spend a lot of energy on protecting our IP and perhaps more importantly, our brand. Um, and as, as we protect the brand, we've ena enabled and um, invited the customs services of the world to participate actively in that. And training a whole new set is, is a major commitment. Well, I'm glad that somebody's custom service is asking an importer about regulations. That's nice. Well, it's very Susan, Susan takes care of all of no. that for us. Okay. Uh, right, right now, from the perspective of the importing community, what's been frustrating to us is so much of what we do anyway is reactive, right? Um, no one ever calls in anybody in the sub-basement where compliance works until something goes terribly wrong. And we spend so much of our time looking for ways to bring value back to the company, and no one really cares about trade compliance until something's on fire. And then now, all of a sudden, you're the most popular person in the world. So for me, you know, it's a way to look at it individually, I would go to parties two or three years ago and people would say, oh, what do you do? I'm a, I'm a trade economist. I specialize in... <laughs> I did fall asleep and nobody would ever come back again. But now when you talk about trade, everybody can't wait to discuss it. So when I think about your products and everything that happens, how early in the process do you think you guys consider tariffs and duties? Immediately. Immediately. As we build our cost models, which we do continuously through the year, we're a generational company. In other words, we have to rewin all our pegs every time a device launches. Wow. And, and so if you think about the certainty of our business, we have to go out there and earn every time a new device launches our opportunity to be part of it. But that also implies that as we build our supply chain, as we build our cost models, we do it generationally and by project. And so we examine it all the time. And Susan and her team around our tariff structure, our HTS codes, et cetera, particularly as we've created new product lines outside the case market, um, they've been an integral part of it. And we are blessed to have somebody with Susan's capability on the staff because we simply no longer have to worry about our compliance issues because she's so knowledgeable and brings a team that's so knowledgeable. All right, Susan, this is being recorded, so when your review comes up, I think Go you ahead. need to make sure that this is included in that conversation. And by the way, she doesn't negotiate with me for stars. So. <laughs> well, she's about to. I think she's awesome. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, another thing, another angle I wanted to go with this conversation, because I don't generally get to do it, you truly are a global brand. You're everywhere. So when you think about the markets that you're about to work, that you already work in, that you're expanding in, that you're growing in, what are some of the challenges that you've been working with there? So, so... What's, what's interesting about our market is if you look at the world and the device migration across the planet, Huawei sells no phones in the United States. And yet they're the number two device maker in the world. So, so if we're going to partner with Huawei and cover their devices, we actually have to work in global channels. And the, the primary sales opportunities are in Canada and, and all across EMEA and the Middle East 
and then also in Asia. The other thing that's interesting about it, and I don't mean to single out Huawei, Oppo, Vivo, Xiaomi, any of the other major Chinese brands, India has, at last count, something like 1.3 billion people. They will have online 420 million smart devices. Their market, though, in terms of their device count, how their networks work, et cetera, is so radically different than any other market in Asia Pacific. And you can't come close to compare it to Latin America or Europe. So, so creating products that play in an Indian market for the Indian consumer at the appropriate price point but are true to your brand is the real challenge. It's a challenge, yeah. Because you have to protect your brand wherever it is in the world. And, and we are a premium brand. We intend to stay a premium brand. And we offer a very, very highly protective case. That you, and we have a lifetime guarantee. If you call us, we'll give you a new case. We don't ask questions. We just take care of you. And it's part of our founder's mentality that, in fact, because we warrant our cases to that level, how do you take that promise into India? And how do you execute it? Because being true to the brand is everything. And sure. I'll say in my interview for my current job, the questions were simple. Do you have integrity? Are you going to live our core values? And are you going to be true to the brand? Wow. Right? The fact that I know something, some small amount about operations, frankly, is a secondary consideration. You've got to do the other stuff first. And then if you can do that, great. Outstanding. So uh, how is it that you found yourself working in operations? Did you lose a bet? Was it a <laughs> funny story about that? I, I, uh, if I'd known then what I know now, I, I, coming out of the service, I had a couple of engineering degrees. And, and because of the nuclear program, we ran nuclear reactors. We had to learn every valve, every fail-safe position. We had to understand how the pumps were powered. We had to understand all the systems and how they tied together. We were ideally trained to be process people in manufacturing environments. And they'd given us a, a very high cost, very intensive training to do that. And so, so coming out, I fully expected to be running manufacturing floors. And in fact, I ended up in supply chain. This, uh, a former Navy nuke, also a submariner, came in. Mike Slomke, um, chief procurement officer, I think now at Honeywell. Brilliant guy. And he was on the leading edge of supply chains can change companies. And, and at that time, a buyer was somebody that shuffled index cards. <laughs> um, and, and suddenly, knowledge is power, and math is power, and how do we do inventory control, and how do we create supply chains that are lean and fast. And I'm by nature a problem solver. I just dig it. I, I really, really like solving problems. And there is no other problem when you're the most, frankly, unpopular guy in the company, right? You're always wrong. You have too much capacity or too little. You have too much inventory or too little. You're too early or too late. You're always wrong. And one of the cool parts about operations is, is you get to dig in and fix it again and again. And the problems come up. You know, your container flips off a ship. You spent six months chasing that container. And now it's floating in the harbor. You got to go solve that problem. And yeah, you're really sorry that it happened, but you got to go solve that problem. Um, so when I came out of the service and somebody offered me a chance at a supply chain gig, I jumped at it. And you know he offered a chance to change a company's profitability with one negotiation. That was cool. And since then, I've run manufacturing floors and built supply chains. And I was an international project manager for a while. Um, we did control systems for, for large scale manufacturing processes. And so I've worked in dozens of countries, and I've traveled everywhere in the world. And, uh, and when I look at that life experience, I'll say, operations was my excuse. But I've worked in a bunch of cultures and met some extraordinary people. Um, and, and as you play that game through your career, what else can you ask for? I'll say, more importantly, do they value you? Do you have something to bring to the table? And do you work with great people? And if those things are all true, and that kind of a recipe for let's be happy, right? At work, at least. Did you did you hear he has two degrees in nuclear engineering? My voice wicked smart. That's what that means. <laughs> and when you're talking about never being right or ever being wrong, it, it just harkened back to my first marriage. So I want to <laughs> thank you for giving me a good Sorry five minutes of pain. Thank you for laughing at my pain, all of you. That was very kind of you. Uh, so I know I have limited time because everybody wants to go drink. I got to tell you, Karen, when you said, do you want a live audience in a bar? <laughs> right now, my, my high school guidance counselor owes me an apology. 
if I've managed to find a way to be a smart aleck and talk to people for a living and then drink after and not pay for it, <laughs> I think things are working out for the chubby kid up on the stage, I'll tell you that. So speaking of guidance and, and that sort of a thing with my limited time, there are questions I want to get to. Uh, there are people in this audience who aspire to have a position like yours. There are students currently in this office, that, in this room, that aspire to have a position like yours. What kind of advice would you give them as they're going down that path other than turn around, consider stand-up comedy, uh, can you marry rich, you know, whatever the case may be? I'd have been a very poor stand-up I don't think so. I think we'd be uh, a good team. Um, I think we'd be a very good team. But what I will tell you, when you get into operations, I wouldn't specialize too early. And, and do multiple things. Do supply chain, go out on the manufacturing floor if you have an opportunity to do that. Get into freight and logistics, so, so get broad. The other piece is if you can manage an engineering team at some point, if, if you really want to be a COO, um, that combination of product engineering and supply chain is a powerful one. And I'm not talking about job hopping, but I am saying broaden your experience and be a constant learner. Um, I'm a curious person. I, I have interest in everything. I study history and technology and I read all the time and, and, and the truth is is I don't I know less as I grow older. So 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 the the fact is if you're a, a consistent learner and you really want a broad global experience, operations is a wonderful place to be. Um, as an observation, we don't tend to value ourselves the way salespeople value themselves. In fact, we bring enormous value, and you have to recognize and educate yourself to bring the full value of your position and your opportunity. To get a position like mine, frankly, is a matter of luck. I'm a lucky person. But the other piece is, if you're good at your job and you dedicate yourself to it, you have a better chance for that luck. Um, I, I will add that all competitive advantage that you create, and I don't care if you use lean or you're changing your global footprint or you redesign something or you have a manufacturing technology that changes the planet, all global advantages or all competitive advantages are temporary. The implication is you have to constantly improve. And if you're a person that wants to settle in with one way of doing it and doing it that way forever, I would not recommend operations as a place to live. What was true when I started my career is not true today. And the speed at which we operate would have been impossible to even consider. And the fact is, sourcing globally and counting on 10 different countries to produce their products and get them to the same place at the right time, that would have been an impossible ask 25 years ago. But we do it routinely now, and we take it for granted. The other thing I'll say is, operations and supply chain is largely about math these days. And, and I'm not talking about just calculation, but I'm talking about large data sets moving around. And our young analysts, and mo they're mostly young, not all, but our young analysts have learned how to, how to utilize data to understand trends and demand and trends in inventory and capability of our suppliers. Um, and if you are a person that likes doing that, there's a home in operations. You don't have to go be an insurance adjuster. <laughs> in, in, instead, come to us. We need you and, and would love to have you. I, I, I've always thought it was sad that, um, you know, the sales weasels, that, right, the guys at the... I like to, uh, yeah, yeah, well, I, I like them too. They help to pay the, the bills, but they tend to get all the spotlight when it's operations. It's actually managing the distribution manufacturing. and Yeah, so um, maybe we should have some sort of a... Lots of companies will always do these big, massive parties and... and Drake ups for their salespeople. Maybe they should do them for the folks in operations as well. All right, I know I have to stop soon, but there are three questions that everybody gets asked on this podcast. You guys have seen Lipton on the Actor Studio, right? It's not nearly as good as that. I'm warning you all. I'm not that creative. So the first question is: first car you ever had, and what happened to it? Pontiac Catalina. Oh, it was nice. the original boat, big, big ship brow on it. Yes. Probably why I ended up in the Navy. Um, <laughs> and and it died due to drop transmission in my driveway and I tried to fix it for two months and then, then hauled it um, and gave this, the hauler the value and the, the title. Wow. Yeah. Well, did you cry when the transmission fell out? Was it a moment of Well, since I put it in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
And then the nuclear navy came calling and everything was fine after that. All right, question number two. If you could have had a career doing anything else other than this, what would it have been? I wanted to be a rock band singer. Nice. Um, and, and I'll say the hair and all that was good, but the fact is, is I can't, I can't carry a tune in a bucket. You can't sing. And, and I have no musical skill of any kind, but that's really what I wanted to do. Didn't stop Ozzy, so I think maybe we should <laughs> reconsider everything and maybe take another shot at it. Number three, if I, gave, if, if I, if I was the genie in the bottle, which, I mean, I know I make most people's wishes come true. Let's get that straight. Uh, and you're all thinking me blue and bare-chested right now, which is great for me. And I could give you one wish in this industry. If you, if you said to the genie what it was, what would it be right now? Totally unrealistic wish, right? Oh, please, yes. Perfect forecast. Perfect forecast. Wouldn't that be awesome? Perfect forecast. Well, I, I love the candor, and I appreciate you coming on so much. Um, I'm going to ask you to come on again. Um, we don't do questions here, sorry. Life is hard, we're, we're a helmet. But I really do appreciate you coming on, and um, thank you to the World Trade Center in Denver for hosting us, and uh, we'll be on every week, every week, so there'll be me pontificating for a little bit up front. This, uh, this episode, we had an open letter to Donald Trump, so that's a fun one. And then we'll have this conversation. <laughs> nope, it's not, it's not political. Uh, I don't dabble in politics, followed by uh, current events with one of my co-hosts. So if anybody would like to be on the podcast, let me know. If you'd uh, got any ideas about current events, let me know. And thank you all so much for laughing at all the right places, for turning off your phones. But for the most part, I, I can't thank you enough, Kyle, for making time for us Thank today. you, Pete. Right, thank you very much. Thank you both. All right, it's current events time. Normally, I would have somebody with me to do current events with, but... Uh, both the people I asked to do current events with me were unavailable. I'm not going to take that personally. Maybe I should take it personally. Maybe this has something to do with my personality, but we'll see. Um, for the next two, I've already got the folks that have agreed to be on with me, but uh, enough of my crying and moaning. So let's start off with the trade war. It's some interesting news right now. Um, it's you know Forbes is reporting that the uh, the trade war is having a pretty nasty effect right now on China. We have a lot of reports in the U.S. that there is, it's, it's undeniable, right? The American economy is being affected by the trade war, and it's probably going to have an effect on inflation. But right now, because the U.S. economy still shows no sign of slowing down, it's hard to, it's hard to point to where it's affecting it. It is certainly affecting it, but um, as things continue to roar and as uh, unemployment continues to be low, no one seems to be paying attention. I think that's going to change when the tariffs are hitting everything. So what people like to point to is this attitude that America, quote unquote, won round one, but China will likely win rounds two and three. Why? Because they're beginning to throw stimulus at everything. They're throwing money at everything. So it is very true that China is exporting less and less to the U.S., but what they are doing is exporting more and more to other countries. Um, they're doubling down. They're digging in. At the same time, when I was in D.C. last week, everyone I talked to, everyone I talked to said that people are motivated to come to some sort of a close. In October, both China and the U.S. are sitting down in D.C. to try to come up with some, try to come with some, some, sort, of, some sort of resolution in the hopes that during the Asia-Pacific meetings in, I think it's Chile, I'd have to double check that, in November, where Mr. Ping and Mr. Trump are going to be, that they could get a handshake and at least say that they've come to some sort of resolution and maybe dial back the list four duties, list four tariffs. That would be great. Um, so we'll see where that goes. Um, I can tell you that you're beginning to see some pretty ridiculous uh, movement of goods at this point. If you look at transportation numbers and if you begin to look at production values, it's starting to really move to other countries. And just anecdotally, I can tell you that my client conversations, you're beginning to see some, some real big shifts to places like Mexico, Vietnam, Indonesia, Malaysia. It's happening. And I think it's going to continue to happen. What I'm really interested in is how much of that stays in those countries. How much of it stays in those countries? I don't really know. Um, you know, in our conversation with Kylie, he, he said it himself. He doesn't know if he's going to stay there or even how much of it's going to go there. But the fact that it's getting a chance says something. You know, it was motivated by those massive increase in costs. Right. Uh, you know, big news this week. 
the administration was given the go-ahead from the WTO to slap those ridiculous tariffs on the European Union over Airbus. And this is a tale that goes back, I mean, way back, even when I was back in graduate school, the European Union gave a tremendous amount of, uh, of, of um, subsidies to Airbus. And uh, the United States plans on slapping some horrific tariffs on the um, on the retail goods that are coming out of the European Union into America. So what they're saying is they could be high as 100 percent on belts, watches, sunglasses, shoes, luggage, handbags, motorcycles, uh, wine, liquor, cheese. The list goes on and on and on. And then the European Union has said, oh, you want to play? Okay, well, what about the the U.S. bank? You know, they threw a bunch of money. Um, they, they're saying like $20 billion in illegal subsidies at, uh, at U.S. plane makers, right? So Boeing as, a, as an example. So maybe you guys should have something thrown at you at well. Well, the thing is, it's going to take them a while to get uh, retaliatory tariffs put in that direction. So I think what you're going to find is this thing's going to move forward. And probably at some point in the spring, we're going to see a tariff war with Europe, at least a one-sided one start with the U.S. So um, more of that coming. In other news, something that I wanted to mention was a lot of companies, as retail begins to really, uh, really change, you know, um, really turn into something and I, you know, everyone saw retail changing. I didn't really see it changing as much as it has um, and as quickly as it has, as we're seeing these physical footprints of stores vanish and disappear. <clears throat> more and more companies are considering this concept of using the de minimis rule to export their goods from the point of production into America directly to the consumer for e-commerce and then use the de minimis rule to completely avoid paying duties if the sale is under $800. So the old de minimis rule said, if you ship something directly to the consumer from overseas and it was worth less than $200 you know, per day, that you didn't have to pay taxes, and then it was raised to $800. Um, $800 a day is a lot of money uh, per person per address. That's, that's pretty, pretty significant. So you're seeing a lot of companies do this in order to avoid the tariffs. Um, what I can tell you right now is that customs is cracking down on the inspections. So they're, they're looking closer and closer because a lot of the people who are taking advantage of this are not U.S. retailers, but Chinese ones that have a solely e-commerce model with their relationship with American consumers. So you're seeing a lot more inspections. Uh, CBP is getting a lot more switched on. For those of you who are considering the 301 model, I would really make sure that your your T's are crossed and your I's are dotted and that you're you're going about it and focused on it with a good broker and you've, you've done your homework. I would go so far as to make sure you've talked to customs ahead of time. So I think it's a good program. Um, just my opinion, I would just make sure that you've done the work ahead of time. All right. Okay. So that's really for current events this week. Uh, next week's podcast, we're going to have Captain Alex Ohanoff, and we're going to be talking about maritime cybersecurity, and we're going to be getting into uh, some conversations uh, that really talk a lot about uh, CTPAT cargo security and really how vulnerable is the supply chain to terrorism in 2019, and what does that mean for all of us, and uh, you know how much time and energy should we be spending on uh, security with regards to supply chain. I'm looking forward to having a, a couple more importers on in the next couple of weeks and uh, you know, seeing where this trade war, trade war goes. Please do reach out to me if you have any questions that you'd like to have answered on the air with TradeGeek. That's pete.mento at crow.com. Again, crow with an E, C-R-O-W-E, pete.mento at crow.com. And uh, keep those questions coming in. And thank you again so much for supporting us. Uh, let's, uh, let's keep working hard out there and keep doing things right. And again, thank you for the support. We'll see you next time on TradeGeek. Thank you.